Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. We're in our second part of a new series, which we kicked off last week, Genesis chapters 1 to 11. We're looking at just the first 11 chapters and we're calling uh, this uh, series, Genesis 1 to 11, a prelude, because we're thinking of these first 11 chapters as like a prelude, which sets up so many questions and tensions uh, and mysteries for us uh, right at the beginning of the Bible. And, and it really is a prelude, not just to the rest of the book of Genesis, but it's a, a prelude to the rest of the Bible as well. So Genesis 1 to 11, a prelude. And we're, we're again looking at uh, chapter one this morning. The assumption, is, the assumption is often made that the people who wrote this were primitive people who only knew their own very small parochial world and who didn't know that there were other ways of looking at the world. They naively thought that their way of seeing was the only way of seeing. But of course, as sophisticated Westerners in a pluralist society, we know better. The world is bigger than we knew with a marketplace of competing ideas and ways of seeing. But actually, it's this view that is historically naive. The people who wrote this creation story were surrounded by strikingly different ways of looking at the world, which they were not only well aware of, but which actually inspired these authors to write in the first place. In fact, they carefully construct their text partly in order to address these other ways of seeing. So that the Genesis creation account at one level finds its shape from interacting with these other ways of looking at the world, calling them into question and offering an alternative way of seeing. So that the main features of Genesis 1 will stand out more clearly when we put it up against the backdrop of the world in which it was written. It was, it was written in the ancient Near East, and, and while there is some debate over when it was written precisely, it doesn't make much difference because Ancient Near Eastern religion didn't change much over the years. In fact, the fundamentals remained the same for centuries. So I'm going to start by pointing out seven characteristics of the ancient Mesopotamian religion, which remained more or less consistent throughout the different eras. Okay, so seven characteristics of ancient Mesopotamian religion. First of all, Ancient Mesopotamian religion was not monotheistic, but polytheistic. They believed in numerous gods. Moreover, their creation stories often started not with the creation of the world, but with the creation of the gods. They start with what's called theogony. Theogony tries to answer the question, where did these gods come from? What was their beginning? A story, a, a sort of uh, genealogy of the gods, if you like, X-Men origins, that sort of thing. And only after they've described where these different multiple gods came from do we find out about the creation and ordering of the cosmos. Tied in with the, the polytheism and theogony was a sort of divine bureaucracy, a bureaucracy of the gods, if you like. And, and in this divine bureaucracy, there was a constant struggle for position the reordering of their ranks and fight to rule, which is known as theomarchy. So to summarize our first three characteristics, what we said so far, they believed in multiple gods, polytheism. Those gods had a beginning of their own, which is theogony, and those gods were locked into a struggle for supremacy, theomarchy. A fourth feature of these ancient Near East gods is that throughout most of the literature, it is clear that 
deities are viewed to a large degree as being inside the cosmic system, as, as being part of it. For example, they had sun gods and they had moon gods. These gods were located somewhere within the universe. And this is connected to the fifth feature. Certainly these gods had more control of the cosmos than mere human beings did, but because they are still part of the cosmos themselves within the created order, located somewhere inside the cosmic system, there is a limit to their reach and control. So for example, the gods had to fight the sea and the sea monsters, which as we've noted before, were ancient symbols of chaos and evil. For this reason, ancient Near Eastern religion has been called a religion of anxiety because there was always the possibility that the gods, who were more powerful than us, could still, nevertheless, be overcome by the forces of chaos and evil and they could be swept away and us along with them. Which brings me to the sixth characteristic of these gods. These gods who were part of the cosmos and who were therefore had limited control over the cosmos are themselves at times dependent on human beings to meet their needs. The Mesopotamian picture of the relationship between humans and the gods was service as slave labor designed to meet the needs of the gods by building temples, which became their houses, making sacrifices, which became uh, the food for the gods. And finally, the seventh feature uh, is the image of the gods was stamped on the kings, the princes, the emperors. The image of the gods was stamped on the kings, the princes, the emperors. The image of the god was something shared by the elite. Only the rulers were gods, the bearers of the image of the gods. And this legitimated their rule over their people, who, like the gods, saw the rest of humanity as a means to their own ends. So, one of the reasons why the biblical creation accounts were written in the first place was to present the God who didn't fit any of these categories, the, the seven categories we've just described, and to establish a very different relationship between God and humans and the rest of creation. So I'll quickly highlight how the author goes about subverting the, the view of the predominant surrounding culture. First of all, the biblical account starts with the assumption that there are not multiple gods, but there is one God. In the beginning, God, singular. And Genesis doesn't start out by telling us how God came into existence. There's no theogony here. It just starts with the assumption of God's eternal existence. And just as an aside, when, when, atheists, when atheists ask the sort of gotcha question like, well, who made God then? Or where did God come from? And, and yes, full-grown adults actually do ask this kind of question. What they have in mind is something more like the Mesopotamian gods, the characters who make up the ancient Mesopotamian divine bureaucracy. But of course, in the biblical account, because there is only one eternal God, without beginning, without end, there is no divine bureaucracy. God does not struggle for preeminence. There's no theomarchy. Not only does God not have to struggle with these forces in the cosmos, but God is not even located in the cosmos in the manner that these other gods were. 
This is why the author called the sun and the moon uh, oil lanterns. Uh, as I mentioned last week, there were perfectly good Hebrew words for the sun and moon, but there was an etymological link between these words and the Semitic languages that surrounded them, whose words for sun and moon were actually names of gods. And authors, the author's point is that these are not gods. They're, they're more like gods, oil lanterns. And that's why the author of Genesis gives us this added explanation that the sun and moon are there to mark out the days and the nights and the seasons and provide light. By spelling out their function, the author is telling us we don't serve them as gods. They are the sun and moon. They are part of the created order. And they are, in fact, there to serve us. They're there to serve humanity for these purposes. And because God is not located in the same way that the Mesopotamian gods were located somewhere inside the universe, unlike the Mesopotamian gods, who had a limited reach and were themselves threatened by the forces of chaos and evil, God, in the Bible, in the Genesis of creation account, is depicted as being sovereign even over those things which threaten us the most. I've pointed out before how the author goes about making this point, but it won't hurt to point it out again. Bara is the Hebrew verb used to underline a creative act which only God is capable of. There are three places where the Hebrew term bara, to create, is used in this chapter. The rest of the time, the author uses the more pedestrian term to make rather than to create, to make. The verb bara is used at the beginning of creation where it says God created bara, God created the heavens and the earth. And the author uses the term bara when he says God created humans in his image. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? That the author would use this term to highlight the opening of the creation narrative and also to use it at the pinnacle of the creation story when God creates human beings. But the third place the author uses the term bara is when he says God created the sea monsters. He doesn't just make them, he creates them. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to us, but someone inhabiting this ancient symbolic world, for them, the point was abundantly clear. God doesn't have to fight the sea monsters, he created them. The author is essentially saying that the sea monsters are more like rubber ducks in God's bathtub. In other words, God is ultimately sovereign, even over the things that threaten us the most. And sixth, God does not need humans to meet his needs by building a temple and making sacrifices, providing housing and food for God. If you remember last week that the structure of Genesis invites us to, to really see the creation as God's temple, and God is a temple builder. And in the Genesis account, humans don't provide food for God, but God provides food for humans. That's why there's all this stuff about you may eat from these trees and eat from these seed, to each seed-bearing plant. It's, it's not just botanical information. It, it's a theological point. We don't, meet, we don't meet God's needs, but God meets our needs. And finally, in the Genesis account, the image of God, the image of God is not a way of legitimating a political hierarchy, the ruling elite, because it's not just the king or the emperor who bears God's image, but every single one of us, all of humanity. 
So you can see how the significant points the author wants to make become much clearer when we consider the language and structure of the text, like we did last week, and then place that language and structure against the backdrop of the cultural context in which it was written. This way we can avoid all sorts of sort of pointless arguments about whether or not this is scientifically justifiable, not simply because modern science wasn't a thing back then, but because this really is not the author's interest. He, the author's interest is a, the, a theological interest. Now we may think, well, this is all very interesting, but then if this is addressing these ancient gods, then what's this got to do with us? We, we don't believe in Mesopotamian gods. This is ancient mythology and superstition. Perhaps by unearthing the origins of this text, all we have done is relegated to an irrelevant past. And perhaps that's why people enjoy arguing about science to try to keep this relevant. Someone once said to me, oh, so you're saying that this is just theological. But I'm not sure I would want to use the word just in that sentence because the theological points are the relevant points for us today. Now, while we don't believe in ancient Mesopotamian gods, we do have ideas. Our ideas have their own interesting histories and origins. They have their own origin stories. And many of our ideas contradict each other and compete with each other for preeminence. And sometimes we become so enamored with our ideas, we start to see people as a means to an end. They're no longer image bearers, but a tabula rasa, a blank slate on whom we can write our ideas. We want them serving our ideas or perhaps become slaves to our ideas. And we actually start to use these ideas as a sort of dividing line between people. Perhaps this is all starting to sound a little familiar. Yes. Sometimes our ideas have the power to grant humanity and take it away they be because they become the grounds on which we humanize some people and dehumanize others. Our ideas can grow to these monstrous proportions endowed with the position and the power of the gods. This is nowhere more obvious than with our current political situation in which people who vote one way are immediately seen as doing something evil and wrong. Our political parties have become gods, adjudicating between the evil and the good, giving us the permission to dehumanize large swathes of the country who don't agree with us. We see them as bad, evil people, as Trump might say, or deplorable and irredeemable, as Clinton would say. Of course, this is all completely delusional, and we'll consider this in more detail in a few weeks. But think about your own experience for a moment. Perhaps you've had a friend or family member who have found something and you noticed how that something became more and more important to that person. Perhaps it was a great cause, a powerful movement, an idea, an ideology, identity, or sometimes, sometimes it's just a multi-level marketing scheme. You see, it could actually be something as trivial as that. But whatever it was, you watched this thing grow and grow in importance for your friend. And as it grew, it became harder and harder to talk to that person. Not simply because they enjoyed talking about it all the time or because you disagreed on the issue, 
but because instinctively you knew that there were now only two categories of people in this person's mind, those who serve their idea and those who don't. And you knew that if you disagreed with them, they would eventually shut you out. But you loved this person, so you kept on talking to them. But eventually, this thing, which had, which had grown to these mon monstrous godlike proportions, crushed the relationship, and it came to an end. As human beings, we simultaneously hold all sorts of good and bad ideas. We have all sorts of good and bad thinking on countless different things. And so we dare not grant them the status of a god. So, the obvious question, what idea in the marketplace of competing ideas might you be in danger of granting that kind of power? The power to humanize one group and dehumanize another. What idea is it that secretly you want everyone subjugated to what one idea has grown to such monstrous proportions that it has become the dividing line between you and your neighbor you and your friends you and your enemies you and your own family and has now taken on the limited yet extraordinary power and position of the gods as i've said many times before this is why ideology is so evil it takes an idea and it makes it more important than loving the person in front of you. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. There is nothing more important than loving the person in front of you. And how does Jesus love? He gives himself. He gives himself. He gives himself for people whose ideas and political ambitions were diametrically opposed to his own. And he does this not to affirm them in their ideas and ambitions, but to rescue them from their monstrous godlike power that they had come to hold over them. Love one another as I have loved you. Words spoken in the Garden of Gethsemane, but words intended to invite us back to the Garden of Eden, where there is only the one true eternal God, who doesn't compete with other gods for preeminence, but is preeminent and sovereign over everything, including all those things that threaten us, and over all our finite, idea, finite ideas, which we so often cling to for protection from those things we fear the most. Can you hear Christ's generous invitation today?